understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the October installment of Beer with BMSIS. It's the monthly podcast that features the ideas, research, and philosophies of the members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can visit us on the web at bmsis.org. And if you go to bmsis.org slash podcast, you can view a recording of all previous podcasts, as well as download the handouts that will be used in the flyer. And, of course, I'll also remind you that any alcoholic beverages you must be of age in the country of your origin to partake of. <laughs> so uh, with that uh, disclaimer, I will turn things over to Dr. Aaron Goldman, who will introduce us to our beverage. Thank you. Uh, so today I thought I might do something different, um, and instead of and instead of talk about a brand of beer, I wanted to talk about a recipe of a beer cocktail, uh, which I made at home for dinner um, a month ago when I uh, asked whether I could introduce this speaker. And the, the cocktail is called a michelada. It's related to a chelada, which is both of these are Mexican uh, uh, beer cocktails that are catch-all terms for uh, a whole class of cocktails, really. The michelada is, the basic recipe is any Mexican lager, um, and you pour it over a mixture of lime juice and cayenne pepper on ice. Right now I'm drinking one made with Corona. Um, I suggest not using squeezed lime juice, uh, but pre-made lime juice, and a couple taps, and you want about an ounce of that, and a couple taps of cayenne pepper over ice and pour the beer on top of it, I can tell you it's very, very refreshing. There are some uh, crazier-sounding variations out there, including uh, tomato sauce, soy sauce, and one that I tried a while ago that I thought was definitely weird is clam juice. Um, you can buy that in the United States, actually. Budweiser makes a pre-mixed clam juice gelada. Anyway, these are usually served in pint glasses, uh, with a salted rim, and like uh, Bloody Marys and mimosas, they can be uh, you can drink them at any time of day, including the morning, without drawing social stigma. And Wikipedia calls them a good hangover remedy, which I take to mean that they are in fact a good take hangover remedy. Anyway, so that's the michelada. Again, it's a Mexican lager on ice with um, lime juice and cayenne pepper at minimum, and you can sort of choose your own adventure. So with that, I'd like to introduce our seminar speaker for the day, Dr. Michael Bush, who is the Jansky Postdoctoral Fellow at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory at the University of California, Los Angeles. He did his undergraduate work in physics and astrophysics at the University of Minnesota, he has a Master's of Science and a Ph.D. from Caltech. Uh, and today, he's going to be talking to us about his research on the dynamics and physical properties of near-Earth asteroids, specifically whether moving them around is crazy 
or genius. So with that, I'll let Dr. Bush take it away. Okay, so I've got about a half hour of stuff, but feel free to interrupt me at any time because a certain amount of back and forth will help me understand if you actually know what I'm talking about or if I just completely lost everyone. So the basic idea here is uh, its current incarnation been circulating around NASA headquarters and to some extent even private industry for the last year or two, but it's actually a fairly old idea. The basic concept which you can see in an artistically shiny rendering in the upper left-hand corner of the handout, is to launch a spacecraft from the ground, of course, into low Earth orbit. From there, it spirals out past the moon, exits Earth-moon space entirely, goes into a solar orbit, rendezvous with a small near-Earth asteroid or potentially a larger near-Earth asteroid that picks up pieces from the larger object. If you go to the smaller object, you engulf the small object whole, and you haul it all back to Earth-Moon space and park it some, in some convenient orbit. So I'm going to talk through how this idea came into existence, the proposed mission timelines, and then why you would want to do this in the first place. So this started in the current incarnation a bit over a year ago with John Brophy and company at JPL. Brophy is a spacecraft engineer, he'd been assigned a job to understand how solar electric propulsion, that is, solar panels, which you see on the left and right sides of the artist's rendering there, and combined with ion engines, which are too small to be visible, but they're mounted in the main, spa- main spacecraft bus in the center, could be, com- could be used to assist human missions to near-Earth asteroids. So human missions to near-Earth asteroids are in pretty popular state right now amongst NASA headquarters and human spaceflight in general because it lets you go to places that are further away than the Earth and the Moon, so further away from the Earth than the Moon is, new place to go to, potentially more exciting, and does not pose anywhere near the technical challenge that going to Mars would pose. Less time in space, don't have to fight a big potential well when you get where you're going. Asteroids are small. You can, quite on some of the smaller ones, quite literally jump into orbit or jump away into escape velocity. Docking with the asteroid is really what you're doing, rather than landing. But one of the main goals of human spacecraft mission to a near-Earth asteroid would be sample return on a large scale. We've brought back samples from asteroids before. The Japanese Hayabusa spacecraft brought back a little bit of dust from the near-Earth asteroid Itokawa. NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission will bring back potentially up to a kilogram from another near-Earth asteroid in a few years' time. For human missions, you can bring back maybe 100 kilograms or so in the spacecraft with the astronauts. But you can bring back far more than that if you send out an ion engine spacecraft well in advance. So ion engines have what we call very high specific impulse, meaning you can do a great deal of velocity change with a relatively small amount of fuel. You can haul back a lot more material with an ion engine spacecraft than you can with a chemical rocket. But a chemical rocket lets you apply the velocity change much faster at the expense of using much more fuel. So you trade off between bringing back a lot of material slowly and bringing back a little material quickly. Humans, of course, have to travel quickly because otherwise you're spending several years at a time in space. And then you need much more complicated life support system. Whereas the rock samples, they can just hang out there indefinitely. So Brophy's initial idea was to fly a spacecraft up, potentially carry many supplies for the crew, to the target near-Earth asteroid. The astronauts will load it up with a few tons of samples and bring it back to Earth. But then Brophy and company realized they could keep increasing the amount of mass that the, astero- that the asteroid retrieval tug brought back, up to the point that they could bring back an entire small asteroid. 
Small in this case is something 7 to 10 meters wide. Mass a few hundred to a bit over a thousand tons. For a spacecraft launched into low Earth orbit, that mass is maybe a 50th or a 60th of that amount. So you can bring like a huge amount of material. You can bring the asteroid to the astronauts rather than the other way around. And this has a certain amount of appeal, particularly for human spaceflight, because if you're going to send astronauts outside of Earth moon space, you're going to want to test everything that you're going to send out there with them. All the equipment they would need for life support, all of the power supply that you're going to use, all of your engines, and also all of the tools that you would want to interact with the asteroid surface. Your spacesuits, any drills you have that dig into the surface, anchors, nets, what have you. And you can test those in zero gravity. It has to be stable zero gravity for long periods of time. You can't test it inside the Vomit Comet, because the Vomit Comet doesn't actually give you zero gravity. You can have oscillations of up to a tenth of a G as air is hitting the sides of the airplane, and you only get about 30 seconds to run any test at all. So the idea is to bring back this huge mass of asteroid material, park it in Earth-Moon space, have the astronauts play with it, get used to working with rubble pile near the asteroid material, and then you send the astronauts further afield. So that's the sales pitch to NASA HQ. The notional mission design, of course, requires that you find an asteroid that's easy to return, and there are particular criteria for that which are illustrated by the diagram on the right-hand side of the handout, which shows a notional mission to the near-Earth asteroid 2008 HU-4. We most likely will not actually do a retrieval mission on this particular asteroid because it requires the spacecraft launch in 2016 to retrieve the asteroid in 2026. And it takes probably more than three and a half years to build a spacecraft. But there are plenty of objects in this size range that are equally accessible. We simply have to discover more of them, which will happen as a result of current and next-generation asteroid surveys. There is some requirement for me personally to go out and ping more of these small objects with radar so that we know where they are well enough that the spacecraft can get to them. So this notional mission, the spacecraft is launched using either an Atlas or a Titan rocket. You don't quite need to go to a Falcon 9 or any of the human-rated launch vehicles. You launch a spacecraft that masses about 17, 18 tons into low-Earth orbit. From there, you spiral outwards using the ion engines, which, again, give you very high velocity change per mass of fuel, but give you very low thrust, so it takes a long time to speed up. You spiral out to a point where you are crossing the orbit of the moon. At that point, you do a gravity slingshot maneuver off of the moon, which increases your velocity, throws you out of Earth-Moon space entirely. Now you're in a solar orbit headed towards the target asteroid. In this notional model, about 18 months after Earth escape, you arrive at 2008 HU4. There is a typo in that section of the plot. It says 04 HU4. That's a different asteroid entirely, which is not interesting here. It should say 08 HU4, but it's plotted in the right spot. So while you're there at the asteroid, you have very important process to do. The spacecraft consists of three elements. There are the big solar arrays on either side. There's the main spacecraft bus, which consists of five ion engines on one end, a very large tank of xenon fuel in the middle, a bunch of instrumentation, and then connected to the other end, opposite the ion engines, there is this large inflated structure. That gets deployed immediately after launch. Inside of it, there would be six or seven nested plastic bags. We did make jokes about during the mission study about getting endorsements from various garbage bag companies, but these are not actually plastic bags. The notional material is Vectran weave. Vectran is a synthetic aramid polymer similar to Kevlar, but a bit stronger and more stable in the radiation and temperature environments you get in outer space. 
It's used to make Martian lander airbags, the shrouds on the Curiosity rover's parachute, etc. And you then spin the entire spacecraft such that it matches the spin of the asteroid, approach the asteroid along its rotation axis, so now you're not moving relative to the object, slide the whole spacecraft over the asteroid, cinch the bags tight, and now you have captured the asteroid. You want to de-spin the spacecraft, which means that you have to be very careful that the bag is cinched very tightly, because near-Earth asteroids are not very strong. They're only loosely consolidated. Meteorites, which are little bits of near-Earth asteroid that have come through the atmosphere and tagged the ground, are the, the, are the rare cohesive pieces. Most of the asteroid mass is only loosely held together. So you have to make sure that bag is cinched tight enough that when you de-spin the whole system, you don't spray dust everywhere, particularly onto your solar panels. So there's a bit of an engineering challenge there. They budget 90 days for this whole process, which is carefully orchestrated with repeated communication from the spacecraft to the ground and back. The actual retrieval has to be done autonomously because there's no time for the humans to react on the ground because it takes 15 minutes for the round-trip signal to come to go down to the ground and go back up with new instructions. So you set this all up carefully in advance from the ground when the robot does the capture. So now you have, notionally, in this model, 1,300 tons of asteroid that have been captured. You fly the whole thing back to Earth-Moon space. Now, this is carefully timed. In order to be easy to return, you want an asteroid that's already going to be passing near the Earth and Moon. We're not going to bring something back from the asteroid belt. That's way too much velocity change. HU-4, though, makes a close Earth flyby in April of 2026. Not as close as the asteroid Apophis, which makes a flyby two weeks prior. But Apophis is far too big for this particular exercise. In any event, you would then adjust the close approach of HU-4 such that it would fly very close to the Moon relatively far away from the Earth, but close to the moon. You then do a gravity slingshot maneuver again. Only this time, the slingshot is in reverse, subtracting velocity from HU-4 plus the tug spacecraft. The notional design, by the way, is called Fetch. This is what engineers come up with when you ask them for amusing mission names. So the Fetch spacecraft plus HU-4 then are captured into Earth-Moon orbit. A couple of small velocity changes at the correct time, then put the spacecraft in a stable orbit at Earth-Moon L2. So this is the Lagrange point on the far side of the moon. It's a convenient orbit because it is relatively fixed relative to the Earth. And while it's not stable, you can stay there with very small amounts of fuel. The notional mission design here would have station keeping for several decades after it got back. And you can set it up so that if you ever lose station keeping, the asteroid plus spacecraft combination will stay in orbit around the moon. It may eventually hit the moon, but it will never hit the Earth. Something this size, massing about a thousand tons, would not hit the ground in one piece anyway. It would vaporize in the upper atmosphere, as has been seen repeatedly with fire with large fireball events that happen on the Earth every year or two. But you want to avoid even the perception of risk associated with this thing hitting the ground. So you park it near the moon. Convenient place to keep things. Then the notional plan with NASA is that you would then send up further missions, again with the goal primarily of testing the hardware for future deep space missions, up to the Earth-Moon L2 point, set up a small base there, and play around with the asteroid material. The question then becomes, is this worth the money? The notional mission cost is between 2 and $3 billion. If the cost estimates at this stage of the planning, which is very early stages, are correct. 
there's of course additional money associated with launching the humans up to the target object, but that is included in a different section of NASA's budget. Now, you have a thousand tons of material at Earth Moon L2. I've described the testing material for future equipment for future spaceflight angle. There's also another angle which the Planetary Resources Corporation is the most public and vocal proponent of. It's using this large quantity of return material for space resources. And there's a certain amount of appeal to this, particularly for actually a very simple product. If you are sending humans outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, space station in low orbit is inside the Earth's magnetosphere. The Apollo astronauts went outside the Earth's magnetosphere when they went to the moon. And L2 is outside the Earth's magnetosphere most of the time. You are then no longer shielded by the Earth's magnetic field from the solar wind. This produces a significant hazard in terms of radiation. You have solar wind constantly bombarding your spacecraft. You are on the risk, particularly if there's a solar flare producing a coronal mass ejection, a large cloud of very low density plasma flying across the solar system, then running over your spacecraft, giving a large radiation dose to the crew unless they are well shielded. During the Apollo missions, which were only a week outside the Earth's magnetosphere, that risk was considered acceptable. If you're spending several months at L2 or several months at a near-Earth asteroid or six months each way going to Mars, you may wish to have radiation shielding. Some other Blue Marble people have worked a bit on this problem as to what shielding you would need against it. But the basic result is that you need a large mass of radiation shield that you can hide inside. And for a reasonably sized habitat, such a shield would mass several hundred tons. It's a very expensive ship up from the ground. But in this notional model, we have a thousand tons of near-Earth asteroid to play with. The actual number there may be will vary a bit. For HU4, the notional design can be back 1,300 tons. In practice, there'll be some uncertainty in the mass of whatever target object you get in advance of the spacecraft being there. So maybe you design for 1,500 tons and it actually turns out to be 1,000 tons. You don't want to go there and find it's more massive than what you can bring back. And take 1,000 tons as the rough number here. Take 200 tons of that stuff, have the astronauts pile it into sandbags, strap them to the outside of your habitat that you have parked at L2. Now you have a nice heavy radiation shield for the astronauts there. It's a much safer place to be for long term. If you are going further afield to near-Earth asteroids or potentially eventually to Mars, then you would encase a framework in more sandbags, and you would fly that whole thing out to wherever it is you're going with your spacecraft safely, or at least the habitat part of your spacecraft, safely contained inside of it. Now, there is, of course, a problem here that if you are constantly using 200 tons of near-Earth asteroid for this and that, you're going to run through that 1,000 tons surprisingly quickly. Even though this is far more than you would ever want for science purposes, radiation shields are awfully massive. So you need a way to get back potentially even more material. There are plenty of objects, as long as we can find them, ping them with radar, do some remote sensing, select one's appropriate composition. If you select a carbonaceous chondrite near-Earth asteroid, if you're very lucky, they will be 20% water by mass. This is not water as ice or water as liquid. This is water held chemically bonded as hydrate minerals in the material. If you are more typical carbonaceous chondrite number, maybe about 10%. So you bring a 1,000 tons of near-Earth asteroid, 100 tons of that is water. Planetary resources angle is to say that they will make a large bag of some kind, focus sunlight onto the asteroid sample suspended inside the bag, bake out the water, 
which happens around 200 C for these minerals, condense it out in a shadow someplace to the side, and then there's some complicated plumbing that would have to be designed to take that recondensed ice, turn it into liquid water in a fuel tank, which could then be used either split as into hydrogen and oxygen for landing spacecraft on the moon potentially, or potentially any sort of high thrust, low impulse burn you might wish to do, or it can be used for very high specific impulse fuel in ion engines. And then you potentially have a fuel source to use a near-Earth asteroid space, return any second near-Earth asteroid. And you can repeat this process over and over. It's not entirely self-sustaining because you do have your spacecraft that you brought up from the ground, and it will eventually break, and you'll eventually run out of bags. But you can bring back lots of material this way. The limiting supply here ends up being about 10,000 tons per year, but that would require a very, very much larger investment than just the single starting mission. So those are the first two products we can make from near the asteroid return. Radiation shielding, which is basically rubble stuffed into sandbags, and water. You could also consider using the water for life support for whatever crew you might have up there, as well as for fuel for a spacecraft. And that's Planetary Resources' main business plan. Although they freely confess this is a very long-term and high-risk play right now because it's preconditioned on something like this retrieval mission happening. Now, there are some longer-term possibilities here. In addition to containing about 10, 10 to 20% by mass of water, you can have carbonaceous chondrite near-Earth asteroids that contain to 20% by mass of carbon-bearing materials. You could bake those out as well. Then you have organics, which you could use for potentially life support for human habitat. You could start playing around with other forms of organic chemistry and make other products. There's some amount of nickel iron in these things, small grains of metallic material. If you could sieve those out and vacuum cast them, you could start making bulk structural components. If you want to get really ambitious, you can take the silicates that are present in the rock, refine them to get silicon, and make solar panels. But that is a very much long-term project. The baseline here is just that you start off with retrieval mission, bringing back order 1,000 tons, and that enables a lot of future spacecraft, a lot of future spacecraft missions, and also potentially starting this sort of space industry resource utilization, which would bring down the overall cost of all spacecraft of all spaceflight, particularly human spaceflight beyond Earth orbit. Now there is also a important public relations caveat: planetary resources has gotten a lot of press for the possibility of mining certain nickel iron near-Earth asteroids for platinum group metals and selling those on the ground. I used to think this was a pretty cool idea, because then you potentially make money off of this deal rather than just reducing the cost of future missions. But right now, the cost of the hardware for a chemical engineering rig that could process enough nickel-iron material in microgravity and out in vacuum, outer space environment, and return the platinum group metals to the Earth is, very, is far too high to be commercially viable. That's excluding the cost of launching to orbit. It's just the cost of the spacecraft hardware. So unless you can make the spacecraft hardware much cheaper, mining platinum group metals in, selling, uh, in space and selling them on the ground by itself is not enough to make money off of asteroids. So asteroid mining is a way to, and asteroid retrieval, which enables asteroid mining, is a way to reduce the cost of future spaceflight. It's not a way, at least not yet, or in the near future. So the characteristic time scale here is 10 years for a retrieval mission and more than that for using the materials for one thing or another. It's going to be decades, at least, before asteroid mining starts making a direct profit on the ground. It's a caveat to what I've said. 
So the notional model, spend 15 years or so between now and asteroid retrieval, 15 to 20 years, call it, just because we wish to allow some time on this. Spend two or three billion dollars at the beginning, and then more money for playing around with the material once it gets back to Earth and Moon space. Test out future deep space human spaceflight equipment, and then all of this space resource utilization ideas that I have talked about. Is this a crazy idea? Is it just crazy enough to work? Or is it so crazy that we should not even attempt it? And with that, I'll open things up to discussion. Thank you. All right, well, thank you, Michael. That was uh, excellent. Um, so you're not going to tell us if you think it's crazy or not? I guess you proposed, you presented the idea to us, so does that mean you think it's uh, viable? Well, okay, I'll, I'll give you my own personal opinion. When I heard first heard about this idea of bringing back the entire large rock, I thought that was kind of crazy because... I didn't because I didn't think the engineering for capturing a thousand tons of material and flying it back made a sense. But then they pointed out that they could design a, the engineers pointed out to me they could design a spacecraft that would be able to bring back 50, to, 50 60 or even 100 times as much material depending on, as it sent out. And I thought that was pretty impressive. The engineers were worried that we didn't know of any targets. Or we wouldn't be able to find them so they wouldn't have any place to go. I thought that was the easy problem because actually since the mission study was done in the latter part of last year and the early part of this year, we've actually found one or two possible targets. So the, tar the number of known targets increases with time. And eventually it'll get up to this point where there's one potential object every six months or six months or a year or two years coming back into Earth-Moon space. So you have plenty of objects to choose from. If the engineers say it can be done, then it's not as crazy as it sounds. The question becomes, is it worth spending $3 billion? So I have a question, actually, this is Aaron. Uh, I have a question about not so much getting the asteroids back, but whether you can mine them efficiently. One criticism I've heard of the asteroid mining idea is asteroids aren't geologically active, and so the elements don't work themselves into veins. They don't get entrained in the same way that you'll have like a ribbon of gold in the in the crust of the earth here. And I'm not a geologist or a planetary scientist, so I don't really know what to make of either side of the argument. So if I may try to answer that one, the near-Earth asteroids are have varying degrees of differentiation. So in the early solar system, some objects were large enough to melt on the inside, and nickel and iron and most of the platinum group metals sunk to the middle. That happened to the Earth. The largest platinum deposit in the inner solar system is between four and 8,000 kilometers underneath your feet. It's your Earth's core. Some near-Earth asteroids, some Maybell asteroids, I'm sorry, were small enough that they got broken up while also being large enough that they differentiated. So there's a population of near-Earth objects, about maybe 1% of the total, that are nickel-iron, pure, mostly pure nickel-iron. And they actually have more platinum group metal mixed into them than commercially mined platinum deposits on the Earth. But the concentration is still too low to make platinum mining, group mining specifically viable, which is why the focus here is on bulk products. Radiation shielding, which is at some level just mass. Water, which is pretty common. Steel, which is 10, 20% by mass. Carbon-bearing compounds, which again are pretty common. It's not trace elements that have to get we find that have to be very carefully concentrated before you can use them. It's large bulk components. Thanks. That makes sense. 
so Michael, I guess I have uh, another question. Um, in in science fiction, there's this idea. Um, I'm not sure who originated it. That you know, one could perhaps convert an asteroid uh, into a, a space vehicle. Um, is this something that I mean, not in the near next 10 years, of course, but it seems to me if we've captured asteroids into Earth-Moon orbit, um, that at least becomes a little bit more plausible. But is there any like bearing? Is that like even worth thinking about for like the longer term? Could we convert an asteroid into a spacecraft? Depends on what you mean by convert the asteroid into a spacecraft. I talked about radiation shielding. You have a human spacecraft, Mars, say. Mars spacecraft, say, mass is 50, 60, 100 tons. Your, your radiation shield, which is strapped on the outside in some framework, made of, is made of several hundred tons of asteroid material. Still, the bulk of your spacecraft by mass is asteroid. But so basically, just, you are flying in an asteroid. You're just reconfiguring it into an efficient shield. And so you have, you have a nice shell that's made of asteroid material, and then you proceed to fly wherever you want to go. For the Mars case in, in particular, this makes an old idea called the Mars Cycler actually make a certain amount of sense. The idea was that if you're sending humans to Mars more than once, you can recycle the spacecraft that you are using to go from Earth to Mars and from Mars to Earth by having it on a particular orbit that will return to Earth every couple of years. If you're doing that with large, if you're doing this trip with large, heavy frameworks or large, massive frameworks of asteroid rubble as radiation shields, you don't want to have to keep making new ones. So you put that on a cycler orbit and it comes back to Earth every couple of years and you can use it again. And so you, then you're in some sense flying asteroids around the solar system. I see somebody put a note on chat referring to Mary Doria Russell's The Sparrow, where an asteroid is used to make an interstellar spacecraft. That one is outside of any plausible planning horizon. I see. Thanks. So maybe solar system, uh, inner solar system flight anyways, as uh, shielding. You know, and a related question. So platinum metal groups, um, could they be – would it be worth mining them to manufacture electronics on the moon or in space? Um, is there any benefit to that or is it just too energy intensive to get them out? Oh, so your idea now is rather than shipping the platinum groups to the ground, you use them up on orbit. I have not thought about this too much because the electronics manufacturing, you either are – you can make pretty good wire out of nickel iron or copper or some other more common metal if you need to. If you want to make semiconductors or any sort of microcircuitry, then you need silicon. And so the main problem then becomes getting silicates broken down to make silicon wafers, which is the first problem. And then you'd worry about, do I want to make gold wires or silver wires to, to connect everything together? But the main thing by, by mass is making semiconductor chips. I see. Thanks. Now, mentioned inter restricted, this is kind of restricted to the inner solar system. And you're right, it is. All of the, what I've described here is based on solar electric propulsion. That, of course, has this trick that the power supply goes as one over the square of your distance from the sun. So this is all designed for near-Earth asteroids, stuff that are in orbits very similar to that of the Earth. Because if it's coming too fast, a slingshot off the moon will not capture it. It'll just change its orbit around the sun a bit. If you wish to go further afield, you need bigger solar arrays, more fuel, takes more time. Solar, solar electric propulsion has been used to send spacecraft out to the main asteroid belt. The Dawn spacecraft, which of course has now left Vesta and is on its way to Ceres, 
actually holds the speed record in terms of total amount of velocity change done by a spacecraft engine because it's been doing the ion engine propulsion continuously for much of the last, I think, five years now since it's been launched. It just has to have very big solar panels. It takes a very long time because out of 3 AU from the sun in the middle of the asteroid belt, there's one-tenth as much sunlight as there is at the Earth. Once you get past the asteroid belt, solar power becomes problematic because the arrays need to be way too large. There are proposals for very large inflatable structures that would sort of focus the sunlight down into the solar panels, those get kind of unwieldy because then you have this large thing hanging off one side of your spacecraft. So this sort of technique that I've described enables intersolar system missions, where intersolar system is out to the main asteroid belt. It does not deal with stuff past the orbit of Jupiter, but that's still an awful lot of territory. Crazy or genius? I will vote um, plausible. I'll say both. Well, I would say it's, it's certainly a, a clever idea. Um, it, it's maybe not what I would try first with things, but it's, uh, it's definitely a good one to have on the radar. I think from an uh, economic perspective, there may always be a better alternative for the end product. But uh, if that's not all you're looking for, then it might be more worthwhile end product there? Uh, well, I guess it depends on what the goal of the mission is. I mean, if you're looking to, like, mine materials or something or, uh, you know, use this stuff to for some other purpose. I mean, if it's, if it's something that you can only get, you know, outside of Earth, then obviously there's, not, there's no alternative. Uh, but if, if it's something that you could do here, uh, I, I don't know if it would be worth, you know, what you were saying, $3 billion. Make this point clear. You're launching 15 or 17 tons of spacecraft to low Earth orbit. You're ending up with 50 or 60 times that amount at L2. It becomes much more expensive to return that material from L2 to low Earth orbit because you have to go down all of that potential well. So they did talk about returning several tons of asteroid to the ISS, but that's more difficult than returning a thousand tons to L2. So you launch mass X from the ground. And if you launch to L2 directly, you'd end up with mass one-half of X at L2. Instead, you end up with mass 50X at L2, and you end up with 100 times return in terms of the mass involved. But if you wanted to go from L2 back to low-Earth orbit, then you might end up with 3X, and maybe that's not as attractive. So there actually is a very carefully staggered market as to how much mass of different materials you can put at different places for the same cost. And that does have to be taken into account when you're planning what you're going to do with any material you bring back. So it is, it is a caveat to think about. Julia, Thanks. did you want to cast your vote? Oh, Julia just uh, typed in here. She said she thinks it's an interesting idea and ambitious for sure. Um, and that much I'll agree with, too. So the current state of this project is that the initial mission feasibility study was past year they are now trying a larger scale, more detailed design to address some of the engineering challenges in the spacecraft design. And then, as I said, I am making an effort to follow up more small asteroid discoveries. So there is potentially a larger list of mission targets. I see. Well, I don't think anyone voted for crazy, Michael. So maybe um, that's at least something you can hope for and as uh, this mission moves forward. All right. Okay, well, thank you, Michael, once again. That was a fascinating talk. Um, so, listeners, 
Um, please tune in again next month for our next podcast series. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Michael. See everyone. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. 